Welcome to the Otherwise Podcast, Season 3. I'm your host, Casey Tiger. I'm an author, pastor, and spiritual director. I don't know about you, but I don't often think about prison. We think about it when we watch a movie, maybe that involves prison scenes, maybe like the Shawshank Redemption. We think about it as this place where people go and often to be forgotten. Over the course of my life, I've had the pleasure of knowing two people who did time in significant uh, prisons for significant things and to watch their lives not only from the inside but also on the outside. Prison is a powerful, life-changing, sometimes destructive, sometimes constructive thing. It's something that is born into a person and it's difficult for it to come out. In other words, you can take a person out of prison, but it's difficult to take the prison out of the person. And that is extremely important, especially because of our conversation today. Our conversation today is with Dominic Dubois-Gilliard, and his book, Rethinking Incarceration, opens the door to something that me as a white American evangelical needs to take stock of and understand which is the impact of the prison system on black and brown Americans. The statistics he gives in this podcast are both chilling and also helpful because they show us the scope of what's really going on in America's prison systems and helps us as followers of Jesus to respond wisely. And so I'd encourage you to listen to this podcast with open ears, not only to Dominic's story, but also to what he says about how we can begin to undo some of the indiscretions and injustices that come along with the American prison system. And so now we go to the conversation with Dominic Dubois-Gilliard. Well, we're recording this on a Monday, and uh, Dominique and I both have this like Monday pose going on, trying to get our stuff together. So thanks for taking a Monday to talk with me. I appreciate it, man. Yeah, excited to be on with you. So I always start at the same place, and I would love to start here with you because I think you may have... Uh, everybody that I bring on has a unique perspective on the idea of wisdom. But if you were going to define the word wisdom... Uh, where would you start? Wisdom is submitting to the truth that God knows better for my life than God's plan for my life is better than my plan. That would be where I would say that wisdom starts being able to submit to that truth. Um, that God's plan for our lives is better than our own. And so coming to that, that's the kind of definition that sounds like it was hard fought and one through experience. That's not something you read in a book. That's something that you lived into. How, how have you felt like you've lived into that kind of wisdom in the course of your life? Yeah. Um, so to make a longer story short, um, two days before my high school graduation, I got in a nearly fatal car accident. Um, I had been an athlete all my life and had secured a scholarship to go play baseball. Um, and I chose the school that I wanted to go to based off which school had the, the best party, uh, reputation, um, and 
a good sports program and decent course offerings. And so I wasn't thinking about my faith in any way, shape or form when I made the decision of where I was going. And ultimately, um, upon impact, my car was knocked off the road into a ditch. I was knocked into a coma. I got my left lung punctured, uh, broke both my ribs, and uh, my spinal cord was knocked out of place. And I had to get arrested in the emergency room. The initial diagnosis from the doctors was that I was either going to die or be paralyzed from the neck down for the rest of my life. Um, and we, I said, was, I was in a coma for a week. A week later, I woke up, and every doctor who came by my room took time to stop and let me know what kind of medical miracle I was, because I was supposed to actually be dead. But not only was I not dead, but I also uh, ended up uh, recovering and was able to gain full mobility over the course of time. And so they were just saying, like, you need to just stop and appreciate kind of that there's something higher than you that's going on here. Um, and during that first month and a half I was in the hospital, I was super bitter. I was mad at God because ultimately I had gotten hit by somebody who uh, had been drinking, but they their blood alcohol level wasn't above the illegal limit. I mean, it wasn't above the legal limit. And so um, they had hit me because they didn't have their lights on and it was at night, but both our lights got knocked out in the accident and there was no way to prove whose lights were on and whose wasn't. And he was going straight and I was turning. So technically he ended up having the right of way. So I was in all this medical debt. Um, I ended up losing my scholarship because uh, the doctor told me that I couldn't do anything physically strenuous for the next two years because my body needed to be able to recuperate. And that was the only way I was going to be able to go to that school. So like everything I had planned for my life, I felt like was snatched away due to no fault of my own. And so, but during the midst of the recovery, which was three months, um, sitting there and taking in the fact that every doctor stopped and like made time to tell me what kind of medical miracle it was and I was supposed to be dead. About halfway through, I started being so pissed at God I stopped being so pissed at God and actually said, okay, God, if this is true, if science is saying that I should be dead, clearly you intervened and um, preserved my life for a reason. So I want to know what that reason is. Make your will clear to me kind of things. So I spent the next month and a half really just in the word and prayer trying to discern what all this meant. And then God was telling me that there were some things in my life that I needed to clean up. Um, and that honestly, I was saying I was living my life for God, but was living it for myself. And it was ultimately through kind of that, that was the first time that that truth really became real to me. And there have been reoccurring things throughout my life, but that's the most pivotal moment um, that really kind of has sunk in that in is like, that's the foundation for wisdom for my life. Yeah. So if we use that point in your life as a point A and today as a point B, Obviously, you know, the, the party school mentality is gone. Yeah, yeah. You, t- you took a totally different trajectory. What was it that propelled you from recognizing that God was true to take the next steps of education that, and uh, life experience and vocation that you've taken between, if that was point A, to get to where we are today? What, what motivated those steps along the way? 
I mean, I think it's been kind of consistent things like that. I mean, when when all this happened, I was a Christian, uh, but it was like more of a nominal. Um, I was really living off my parents' faith to a certain degree. I had my own, but I hadn't fully claimed it. And so that was the thing I think that really made me fully claim it. And then after that, um, there have been several other um, instances where I just felt uh, an overwhelming sense of God's presence or in spirit leading me in certain directions over other directions. A similar situation uh, was, so when I um, graduated with my first master's degree in U.S. history, um, I applied to doctoral programs and thought that it was the directory I was going. And then um, my mom, who's a minister, kind of bamboozled me into going on this mission trip with my sister and then talked me into going to this other domestic-focused mission trip that was around urban multi-ethnic ministries and how do we do this work um, and embody our faith in kind of under-resourced communities. So in the midst of those two trips, which were back-to-back trips, one was a missions trip to Haiti uh, to provide medical and uh, medical service and to expand a school to allow 100 more students to be able to have access to education. Um, God broke my heart domestically and then broke my heart again internationally to the point that I had applied for PhD programs before I left for the summer. And when I came back from the second trip, I had gotten an acceptance letter from an Ivy League school saying that they wanted to give me a full ride to expand my master's uh, thesis into a dissertation. They were really excited by it. But when I came back, it was clear to me that God was asking me if I was willing to lay down my plans for my life for what God had planned. And God was planning, calling me to go into ministry. So I had to turn down this full ride to this Ivy League school to come back and apply to go to seminary. Uh, ended up going to seminary. Uh, before I actually finished seminary, I got a request from the seminary to actually start serving as an adjunct professor. Um, and then stayed on to teach at the seminary for a little bit after that, but really had this t- uh, t- tug and pull in my heart around, was I supposed to just be a professor or was I supposed to do congregational ministry? So I walked away from teaching for a year and a half and went into congregational ministry for five and a half years and really came to the revelation that the call for me is a bowfang. And so it's just been this kind of constant where I feel like there's always been these crossroads where my mom uh, used to tell me she said for you know younger believers I think Satan tries to trip us up between choices of right and wrong he said she said but I think as you mature in your faith uh devil knows that right and wrong won't get you as easily anymore so oftentimes there's these good options and then there's the option that God would have you choose and the people around you will affirm both And so it's really up to you to discern kind of which one is actually the one that is the spirit directed uh, choice. And so for me, I felt like there's been a lot of those moments in my life where it's like, yeah, everybody, if I would have went on to do doctoral work, everybody would have affirmed that and been happy. But I knew there was a particularity of the call of my life. The spirit was leading me in a countercultural way. And I learned that true wisdom is submitting to uh, the impulses of the spirit over what I want to do intellectually. And countercultural, it tends to lean into another word that's similar, which would be prophetic, mm. I would think. Mm-hmm. And with the book we're talking about today, the word prophetic to me is an adequate and not only adequate, but a very accurate word. Uh, as you're talking about rethinking incarceration, 
And so where did the book, with any book, you know, I talk about this all the time, authors write books out of the collation of their life. Like there's something of you personally in what you've written um, from a multitude of angles, which we can talk about. But what, where was the starting point for this book for you? What launched you to say, I need to do this kind of work? This needs to get out to the world. Yeah, so there are a couple of things. So I think the first thing for me was the story that I opened chapter one up with, with the murder of Catherine Johnston, the 92-year-old grandmother who was killed in Atlanta, Georgia in 2006 in her living room by three law enforcement officers who thought she was harboring and trafficking drugs, uh, went in and did a drug raid, murdered her in her living room, and uh, she turned out to not be a affiliated with drugs in any way, shape, or form, um, and rather than own kind of what they did, decided, unfortunately, to plant drugs throughout her house and make it look like a botched drug raid, lied on the stand until they caught, found out that they were caught in their lie and then confessed to the whole thing and then got such a minimal sentence, um, a sentence that would have been, uh, you know, five times more severe if Captain Johnson actually would have been involved in drug trafficking. And so at that point, I was a senior in undergrad. And I was really trying to decide which way I was supposed to be going with my life. And so for that case to happen 10 miles away from my college campus uh, was really something that kind of helped me understand what, so what the watershed moment that we were living in. And that's where my research really flowed from there. But then I think the next thing that was really was important for me is uh, the first pastoral call that I took was out in West Oakland, California. Um, a community has been decimated by mass incarceration. And I went to a congregation that saw itself as a justice-oriented uh, congregation, and they had never mentioned the words mass incarceration. Um, as I went out into the community, um, I could knock on five doors in a row without meeting somebody whose life was marked by mass incarceration or who had family members who were entrapped in the system. And I said, how can we be doing effective ministry in this context if we're not willing to enter into the pain of the people that we're called to serve? Um, and I, as I went and I started doing research, I was looking at how many churches were in communities that were obliterated by mass incarceration but we're not engaged in the issue in any way, shape, or form. And they didn't even have a theological uh, mindset that was saying that there was anything that their faith was calling them to in the midst of what was happening, uh, something that was unfolding in our nation that's never happened anywhere in the history of the world before. And so I think the church's silence about the issue was the real thing that kind of motivated me, motivated me. but not only their silence was the inadequate theology that we had um, that even said that there was any connection between our faith and what was going on in our world. So those were the things that really compelled me. Yeah. And there's so much in that. And as I read, um, there were some books that you quoted, you cited from that I had read. And um, there's a stirring documentary called 13 by um, oh, Ava, Duvernay. Ava, Ava, mm. yeah, Ava DuVernay. And those were things that were in the back of my head, but as I'm reading, I'm wondering, and I'm listening, I'm thinking about listeners, if, 
what is if you could define mass incarceration i think that might be a good place to start because i think there are some people who are hearing that they're like what is what does that term mean i know what incarceration means what about mass incarceration can you define that yeah so i'll use michelle alexander's definition and build on it because i think uh the system has devolved not evolved um since her book um so she says mass incarceration is a massive system of racial and social control It is the process by which people are swept into the criminal justice system, branded criminals and felons, locked up for longer periods of time than most other countries in the world who incarcerate people who have been convicted for crimes. And then, this is the key, they are released into a permanent second-class status in which they are stripped of basic civil rights and human rights like the right to vote, the right to serve on juries, and the right to be free of legal discrimination in employment, housing, and access to public benefits. I would add that mass incarceration has become a multi-billion dollar industry where people are being exploited for their labor and the image of God is being debased on our brothers and sisters on a daily basis. And the statistics in the book lean towards their mass incarceration is indiscriminate, well, is disproportionately affecting men and women of color. And impoverished communities. And impoverished communities. So from a Christian perspective, the people who are most entrapped in the system are the least of these. Um, It's the poor. It's the mentally impaired. It's people with substance abuse issues. It's people who are trying to free, uh, flee to our country for asylum or to immigrate here to make a better chance for their uh, family. Uh, That's the people uh, who people who have experienced trauma, um, be it uh, physical, emotional, sexual violence, um, and people who also identify on the fringes of society, uh, like our LGBTQ uh, brothers and sisters. Um, Those are the people, people with um, disabilities, those are the people who are disproportionately caught up in the system. And this, the statistics that you give, and are so powerful and there are so many you and i joked like we need a three-hour podcast really to cover everything but there's so much in there that's that i didn't know and that i think most people don't think about um because there is a quote-unquote law and order kind of understanding that flows you know people hear that and they say well you know, we go to binaries. We go, well, are you saying we shouldn't punish criminals? Are you saying there shouldn't be laws and things like that? But when you start to look at the difference between the legal and the moral, you talk about that in the book, the difference between being um, having a moral obligation to just laws, but also having a moral obligation to oppose unjust laws. How, how do you see this conversation in that light? Yeah, I mean, so one of the quotes I talk about in the book is Dr. King says that we can never forget that everything that Hitler did in Germany was legal. Um, So the question of legality is not the question that ultimately we need to center and kind of be responding to um, in the midst of knowing that we live in a nation that has a history of unjust laws. So I think when we think about it in regards to this conversation, I mean, particularly when you understand the roots of mass incarceration, uh, which really are directly connected to the roots of slavery um, in this nation, uh, there is this misunderstanding that mass incarceration really is a byproduct of the war on drugs in 1971, and that's where it begins. But mass incarceration 
literally begins in 1877 with the end of the Reconstruction era. And there are laws uh, that are taken from slave codes that are reapplied and reinter reinterpreted so they can be reapplied after the triangular slave trade is abolished. Um, and these laws are uniquely and specifically uh, written for, but applied against black people throughout the South. And you start to see this massive um, population of black people being arrested after they no longer can be enslaved, quote unquote, uh, for their exploited for their labor. So the question in the South becomes, well, what do we do with all these people that we don't want um, and we can no longer exploit? Well, that gives rise to a new system of exploitation that is enabled because of the loophole that exists within the 13th Amendment, which says that slavery in our nation is illegal except as a punishment for a crime. So you start to get all these Black people who are being incarcerated and therefore, since they're criminals, quote unquote, can still legally be enslaved. And so they get leased out to corporations and former plantation owners where they're doing the exact same slave labor under the exact same dehumanizing circumstances with the exact same no protections. Um, and so what you have, particularly in the South, who's trying to figure out economically how do they sustain themselves after the North has already started to move towards agriculture culture, and they have been dependent on free labor, you have the emergence of this new system called convict leasing, which becomes a Southern strategy to resuscitate a deflated Southern economy. Um, and so people need to understand how lucrative this business is and how this business really is um, the, anti the, the, the root of what becomes private prisons for us today. Um, but with um, Convict leasing, we know that in Alabama alone, at least 200,000 black men were leased as convicts. And in 1890, the money that was earned for convict leasing in Alabama alone, one state alone, would be equivalent to what's $4.1 million today. Um, and then so, let, me give, let me give you one more stat. And in 1898, convict leasing supplies 73% of the state of Alabama's annual economy. So we're, we are, we're not talking about some small scale enterprise or just a few people who are being racially targeted. We're talking about literally a whole region of the country creating a strategy that rooted in racism uh, that led to the over-incarceration um, of black people as a way to sustain the legacy and history of slavery. And they scales all the way legally until 1921, well after people believe that slavery in our nation is over, and it persists underground until 1941. And this is the, I think this is the value, uh, the thing that makes prophetic speech so good is that, and so helpful is not, you know, sometimes people think of prophets and they think of anger, or they think of, you know, proclamations against power, which is part of that. But a lot of it is just awareness mm -hmm. and apocalypse in the true sense of, you know, revealing things that are true. And so you, you mentioned two things I think are really important, convict leasing 
and also the private prison system, which you, you talk about five pipelines mm-hmm. that feed our current incarceration system, uh, one being immigration, one being um, the war on drugs, quote unquote, uh, mental health, private prisons, and then something called the school to prison pipeline. Talk a little bit about those those last few, the convict leasing idea, the private prisons, and the school to prison pipeline, which I feel like all of those are kind of tied together, especially because of one case you talk about in the book where a judge was in the uh, ha- was in the pocket of a private prison system and yeah. actually uh, made millions of dollars from from that. Yeah, so um, when we talk about uh, I'll do, let me let me start with mental health just because that one's important. I think not a lot of people know about that. So right now in 44 states plus the District of Columbia, there are more people locked up with severely diagnosed mental health impairments in the state's largest uh, incarceration facility than who are receiving treatment in the state's largest psychiatric hospital. 44 states plus the District of Columbia. And this problem is so bad that mental health professionals five years ago bluntly said, prisons are the new asylums. We are warehousing men and women who have mental health impairments who need medical interventions, not incarceration, but instead of giving them the treatment they need, we incarcerate them and exploit them for their labor. In fact, every year, 90,000 people are legally constituted as incompetent to stand trial which means they don't even have the mental capacities to understand why they're standing in front of a judge. But rather than giving them the psychiatric help they need, we choose to incarcerate these men and women. Incarceration is not going to do anything but exacerbate the issues that are plaguing um, our neighbors in this case. So mental health has become a major pipeline into the criminal justice system. Um, When we talk about the school to prison pipeline, we're talking about right now in our nation, uh, well, basically, let me give you a broader definition and I'll come back to that. Um, the school to prison pipeline really just highlights the philosophical shift in how we respond to adolescent misbehavior in K through 12 education. Uh, it looks at how things that me and you would have gotten uh, detention for um, have now been outsourced and the punitive nature of the punishment has risen to the point that you now get out of school suspension, expelled, and arrested for our misbehavior uh, on campus. And we're not talking about violent misbehavior because the National Education Policy Center found that 95% of students who are arrested are arrested for nonviolent offenses. So these are, this has been a philosophical shift on how we respond to adolescent misbehavior, and it's in direct correlation with the increase in number of school resource officers who we now have on campuses, um, which the reason why earmarked funds have been given to school resource officers is the alarming number of school shootings that have been increasing. But where that logic breaks down is that disproportionately these school shootings are happening in white suburban uh, environments. But when you actually look at the allocation of school resource officers, they're disproportionately being allocated to impoverished communities of color where school shootings are not disproportionately happening. So there, there is a kind of inconsistency within that line of thinking uh, because there's a direct correlation between the number of school resource officers that are on campus and the number of students who get caught up in the school to prison pipeline. So um, I talk about that in detail in the book and why that's problematic. 
But just to give you an example of kind of some of the increase that we've seen, um, school suspensions have increased from 1.7 million in 1974 to 3.1 million in 2000. Like there's been a, a very much punitive shift in how we respond to adolescent misbehavior. But the other thing the school to prison pipeline uh, does is it really uh, highlights a well-worn path where impoverished youth of color are taken from underfunded, antiquated um, schools, and they are sent to earmarked state-of-the-art prisons. Um, and so there is this choice that's being made on where will I receive the most return for my investment in you as a youth of color from an impoverished community? Will it be through me investing in your education or in your incarceration? And that choice is being made for communities and that same choice is never made for other communities. So let me give you this real quick to put this on the ground. Right now, 1.7 million students are in schools with police, but no counselors. 3 million students are in schools with police, but no nurses. 6 million students are in schools with police, but have no school psychiatrists. And 10 million students today are in schools who have police, but no social workers. And certain communities, because of their resources, never have to make a choice of which one do I want to have. They get the both and. Other schools and districts, because of the lack of resources, have to make that choice. And unfortunately, instead of investing in the resources that are going to help our communities thrive, we're overemphasizing a policing of our communities that strips them of the resources that they actually need in their discernment of kind of vocationally, who are they aspiring to be? And so right now, I mean, as you know, well, we just, we're coming off of a strike here in Chicago Public Schools, and it was directly connected to these stats that I just quoted. Um, and I think we are, we are preventing the communal and individual thrivings of impoverished communities of color by making this kind of punitive choice um, for them. So yeah. the school to prison pipeline is really problematic and it's buttressed by the economic disparities. So in 2016, they did a study and they found that non-white school districts get $23 billion less than white school districts despite saving, uh, serving the exact same number of students. There is something systemically wrong that is reperpetuating all of these realities that we're talking about here. And it's all interconnected in this big web that we call mass incarceration. Yeah. So looking at that, uh, being coming from an evangelical tribe, um, I have heard way too many times the phrase, it's not a skin problem, it's a sin problem. <laughs> and the, the longing for conversion, and you talk a little bit about this in the prison uh, chaplaincy chapter, where you talk about this idea that we mm -hmm. go for heart conversion, but it's, it is systemic and socialization. It's two things together. And so my heartbeat is for spiritual formation. Mm -hmm. And I, I think this is a formation question more than anything else, because a lot of people could be hearing this and going, well, there's politics involved. And you know, and especially us in Chicago is like politics, holy cow. Um, there's politics involved, there's systems involved. All I'm going to do is pray that God changes people's hearts. Um, that's not, that's not working <laughs> clearly. <laughs> I, I hate to, I have to say that out loud. That's clearly not working. Um, so there is a, a theological yeah. problem here too. Yeah. 
bring bring people into that a little bit because I think some of the stats they'd be like, wow, that's shocking, but it wouldn't touch that part of them that they would quote unquote say, but really belongs to Jesus. Talk about the theological side of this a bit. Yeah, I mean, theologically, uh, the reality is that we are commissioned to be engaged with the criminal justice system, and we just have not reckoned with Scripture's consistent call to be engaged. So Matthew Matthew 25 explicitly says, if you're a follower of Jesus, that you're supposed to be present behind prison walls and jail cells. Um, It says, uh, when we visit the prisoner, we not just visit the prisoner, we're visiting and spending time with Jesus himself. And so that's the starting place. Uh, Hebrews 13, three says that we are supposed to remember the incarcerated as if we were incarcerated with them, suffering alongside of them. Um, another explicit commission to be engaged with the system. Um, Acts 16 is all about Paul and Silas who are falsely incarcerated and publicly humiliated and shamed by a corrupt criminal justice system that prioritizes money over justice. Um, And we see that Paul is even willing to endure the persecution, even though he knows that if he just would have flashed his Roman citizenship, they would have actually treated him better. So it's also an indictment on the system that says that it has a certain type of justice for certain people and other people get a more punitive justice. And so I think we just theologically haven't really sat with scripture and under, tried to parse it out to make sense of our modern day times. But none of these things are new realities. These are all things the scripture kind of has highlighted for us and kind of shown us how do we try to navigate them and what does it mean to have a distinctive Christian witness in the midst of broken systems. Um, The other piece of that is the fact that five of the books of the Bible were written in prison. Uh, You got Colossians, Philemon, Ephesians, Philippians, Revelations were all books written in prison. So there is this unique and particular relationship of the body of Christ and incarceration. And then to cap it off, um, the reality is there is no good news without incarcerated people. Like literally, if you take all the incarcerated people out of the Bible, the Bible falls apart. You got Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, John the Baptist, who was called to pave the way for Jesus, Paul, who wrote the majority of the New Testament, Peter, to whom Jesus said, upon you, I will build my church, Samson, Hananiah, the seer, Joseph, Malachi, Stephen, Jeremiah, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Silas, Junia, Andronicus, all incarcerated people. So if God chose so intentionally and so specifically to speak through incarcerated people, then why do we believe that God ceases to have that desire today? And if early Christians understood their Christian witness as being something so prophetic prophetic and so threatening to kind of the status, the unjust status quo of worldly empires, why do we believe that our faith doesn't call us to the same kind of prophetic witness today? So it's it's a dual question, and it's really, I'm glad that you're interested in spiritual formation, because to me, these are all discipleship issues. These aren't political issues. This is a question about what does your faith call you to in the midst of you seeing your brothers and sisters be obliterated by unjust systems and structures? And even when we take it to the question about the death penalty, this is a question about what do we truly believe? Because every Sunday we get up, we go to church and we gather and we preach sermons, sing songs and pray prayers, thanking God that there's nothing that we can do that can separate us from the love of our Savior. We say that there's no, nothing that we can do that can make us unlovable to God 
But then we turn around and go to the voting box and ultimately vote for the death penalty, which at the end of the day says certain people are irredeemable. So we either believe in redemption or we don't. And the death penalty is a real litmus test for um, what we truly believe as the body of Christ, um, particularly given the fact that our Lord and Savior was falsely incarcerated and falsely put to death by the state. You would think that we would have a different ethic and orientation towards this, but unfortunately we don't. And I have a chart in the book that kind of breaks down support of the death penalty along racial and denominational lines. And so particularly given the fact that we now know that for every nine people who are sentenced to the death penalty, one person is falsely incarcerated. Um, to keep that kind of a broken system intact just shows our disregard for the incarcerated and those, particularly those who have committed the most heinous offenses. Uh, because as Brian Stevenson says, if we had a rate where one out of nine planes that we sent into the sky crashed, there's no way we would continue to allow people to fly. But since we don't care about our incarcerated brothers and sisters, since we've been socialized to think about them as so inherently different than us, then the things that were permissible for them would never be permissible for us. And that's the real theological undergirding question for us as the body of Christ. Can we allow ourselves to be socialized into this us and them mentality where we don't believe that all people are inherently made in the image of God and therefore deserve uh, the same kind of dignity that we insist for ourselves? Are we truly loving our neighbor the way that we would want to be loved, even when our neighbor is incarcerated? And the question about incarceration is important because, uh, let me just make this one last theological term for you. Um, it's important because at the end of the day, if anybody should know that no person should be forever defined by the worst thing they've ever done, it should be Christians. Because if we were defined by the worst thing that we ever done, we would be destined for eternal separation from our Lord and Savior. So we know that scripture tells us that Christ not only died for us uh, while we were sinners, while we were sinners, but while we were enemies of God. So God didn't wait for us to clean ourselves up and then get right before he loved us. God showed us grace and love while we were still in the wrong. And so that same grace that claims us, that adopts us, that um, kind of makes us part of God's family, is the same grace that we are supposed to be extend, extending to our brothers and sisters who stand in the need of grace today. But instead of displaying that grace, we have succumbed to a very punitive response that has uh, been influenced by fear-mongering and um, propaganda used to um, bolster people's political careers. Oh my goodness, brother. <laughs> There's so much and just just that it, it highlights the fact that we believe that God is the only one who's just enough to judge us until it becomes time to judge someone else for a certain particular crime. It does make us also, I think it's a formation question because anything where Jesus asks us to come and die to something is a formation question. Anytime the, that ego that sustains us is asked to be sacrificed, we immediately get cramps. And uh, we don't want to we don't want to engage with it. And so when you talk about the fact that there's an indiscriminate number, there's a disproportionate number of black and brown individuals, both male and female, who are incarcerated. 
And then also there is a an ignorance of, I think most people would say, oh, no, no, I, I support prison ministry or I, I believe that, you know, we should be we should be kind to people who are incarcerated. But don't look at the systematic pieces that have put, what is it, one in four, something one like in, that? One in three. One, one in, in th- three black men, one in six Latino men. Uh, yeah. When we don't look at the things that have caused that to happen, again, it, it, isn't, it isn't working. Like we can visit, but can we also speak into that particular thing? And some of that has to do with what we think about punishment and what we think about God. Yeah. And so you do talk a little bit, and the chapter is so beautiful. I'm not even going to try to ask you to, to bring it all together. Mm-hmm. But some of it has to do with our belief about how God deals with crime, namely crime as sin. Yeah. How, how does that enter into people's minds? Yeah, I think we make an improper uh, transfer here where we think that God is holy and therefore set apart from sin. And so therefore, we as the people of God have to be holy and set apart from sinners. And I think that that improper translation leads to us believing or at least being prone to be uh I don't, yeah, manipulated by politicians' uh, fear-based rhetoric, uh, talking about the only way to keep ourselves safe um, and to keep our communities and our children safe is to actually incarcerate away the problem, people. And so it, it makes us believe that we can actually solve our social ills by taking this problematic group or the cancer, quote unquote, amongst us by extracting it out and incarcerating it away. Um, And so we've had all of these kind of different things from the different war on drugs and all these different things where people have tried that. And it's been so restorative. And I've been so thankful for the police chiefs who've come out and said bluntly, the war on drugs was an utter failure. You can't incarcerate yourself out of addiction. Um, and, and so there, there is a, 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 an awakening to the fact that you can't do this. This isn't how you do community development or restoration. You ultimately need to get down to the root causes of the harm. Um, and so what I found, there's this popular saying that people say all the time is hurt people hurt people. But when it comes to incarceration, what I found is traumatized people who have not had the root sources of their trauma addressed go out and re-traumatize other people and cause trauma in our world. And so when you look at who is actually incarcerated, it is traumatized people who lack the resources to actually get to the root causes of that trauma. And because of that, you see this trauma kind of being reenacted in different places and places because there is not the support for people who have endured this kind of trauma because they just get enfolded in this broken system. And then that's when we start to see this generational brokenness uh, re-perpetuate itself. But to get back to your question about God, sorry, I went on a tangent. Um, well, I think our, um, I think when we think about God and we think about God, again, uh, being set apart from sin, I think we also think that God, um, God's vengeance is something that people who have sinned are supposed to experience. And so the more punitive the punishment, the deeper understanding uh, for someone about the weight and the gravitas of their sin. Um, We believe that them kind of coming into this, this moment of understanding the depth of their sin is what's gonna breed the transformation. 
Um, and so I think that's another piece of uh, the brokenness of punishment. And I talk about how some prison chaplains really articulated a theology that really expanded and emboldened uh, the punitive nature of incarceration because of that, that very theology right there. Um, but I think the last piece of it uh, for us is that we think that um, we only understand God's response to sin as wrath. Um, and when we think that God's response to sin is uh, just wrath, then there have been some theologies that made us um, understand that wrath as justified wrath towards sin that ultimately, again, uh, is needed in order for God to return to a healthy place with us. Um, and that that is um, a very, very broken way of understanding God's love, that God can only love us once God pours out God's anger towards us and our sin. Um, God never stops loving us, even in the midst of our sinfulness. Um, there is accountability for sin, but that accountability does not look like God saying, I'm going to pour out all of my anger on you. And then after you're able to digest it and work through it, then we can be back in right relationship again. Um, and God doesn't even do that to his son, Jesus, either, uh, which is the other piece of the bad theology. People are like, oh, yeah, yeah, God doesn't pour out his wrath on us, but he poured it all out on Jesus. And, you know, that wrathful Jesus taking on God's wrath is ultimately the thing that allows us to be in a loving relationship with God again. And so I think there's just something very wrong with the belief that God can only love once God has a place to pour out God's wrath. I mean, I think about think about this in in return, in exchange, I mean, in a different context, like with us and our own kids. Like when my son does something to tick me off, I don't stop loving him in the midst of what he's doing to tick me off. And I don't have to go pour out my wrath somewhere before then say, okay, now we can be back in right relationship. Like even in the midst of me being pissed off at him, I'm still loving him. There's accountability for what he's done, but my love is not contingent upon my ability to go pour out my wrath somewhere. And so I think um, it's really important for us to understand God's has said and how God's unrelenting love is constantly in pursuit of us, even while we were yet sinners, hence why Jesus was willing to die for us while we were yet sinners and enemies of God. And so I think there, there's a lot of layers to this. Um, and I think it's a lot of the reason why you see so much brokenness in the church and so much depression where people and so much shame culture in a lot of traditions where people really struggle to feel like God loves them because they have understood God's love as being dependent upon God pouring out the wrath somewhere before they can actually be back in the right relationship. Um, and I think if people understood God's unrelenting love more and understand that it's not contingent upon us being um, obedient. God loves us even when we're disobedient. Um, and that love can sometimes be even more fierce when we're disobedient to try to help us to understand kind of God's plan and purpose and calling on our life in the midst of us going astray. And so I think that that whole piece right there is really important because ultimately, if we believe that people deserve punishment um, and wrathful punishment, um, and they need that as a way to kind of seek God, then instead of being a protect uh, institutional accountability, we in many ways are the ones who are incentivizing prison culture to be more retributive and punitive 
um, and the suffering that comes from it can't be disconnected to the church's witness. Um, and so for me, that's part of what I wanted to raise in the book is, no, we need to be leveraging our, our voices and our collective power to help be accountability mechanism for a broken system. Because when we don't go and we don't see the dehumanization that's happening every day behind bars, um, we are prone to be either complicit, apathetic towards the suffering, or again, encouragers of the suffering because of some of the broken theology we have. And so we have to be the people who are advocating for a criminal justice system that's going to create chances for true transformation, lasting rehabilitation, and healthy reintegration for our brothers and sisters who are returning citizens. Yeah. If not us, then who? Yeah, absolutely. Oh my gosh. So here's the dreaded question that always comes in this conversation. Okay. Uh, what It's not dreaded. It's really not, but it's the <laughs> one that like, it always comes toward the end. But if, if someone's hearing you and th- something in them has been, their conscience has been pricked a bit about this, where do they go from here? So what is it that they do next to say this restorative justice of God is what our criminal justice system needs to look like? Where do I as an individual actor, maybe even in a church that I don't think is going to move on this, where, do, where does this person, where's their first step in helping to try and see some of these things come about? Uh, first step I would say would be to read the book because you'll actually get a much fuller picture of what I'm, what I'm trying to communicate in this podcast. So there's a lot of nuances that I give to this stuff and a lot of biblical theological foundation for why we're supposed to be involved and what our environment should look like. Um, but in addition to that, I mean, I think it all starts with proximity. Um, I think it is virtually impossible to understand how we should be advocating in our criminal justice system and understand the urgency uh, for our activism without being proximate. Um, That's why I think Matthew 25 is so important. Jesus knew this. Jesus knew that the people listed in um, Matthew 25, the naked, the poor, the homeless, the incarcerated, the sick, when we're not proximate to them, they're out of sight and out of mind. And so that whole passage has been interpreted a lot of different ways. But for me, the core of it is proximity. God is saying that when you are proximate to these people, then your understanding of the gospel is revolutionized. And you understand the need to stand in solidarity with your brothers and sisters and be an advocate for people who sometimes have just fallen on hard times, uh, were born into very difficult situations, sometimes have made bad choices. it's the whole range, but in spite of that, how do we love our neighbor who find themselves in those circumstances? So for me, it starts with proximity. But then I say that every church should be involved in at least one of four ways. Um, you should be doing preventative ministry. You should be doing ministry to the incarcerated, walking alongside of families who have incarcerated loved ones or in the work of reentry. And they're very tangible things that we can be doing on all of those. Um, I'll just give you an example in prevention. I'll run through a couple examples that we can be involved in prevention. So churches can adopt under-resourced and underfunded schools in their neighborhood. I oftentimes uh, tell a church to do a search 
in your community and find a school that has the highest number of students on free and reduced lunches. That's, that will show you that that's the school in the most socioeconomic need. Uh, churches can leverage their social capital to create a more equitable playing field for those students at that church, I mean, at the school. Uh, we also know that in many schools that are underfunded, teachers who are already underpaid are asked to take out money from their own paychecks to provide basic school supplies for certain students. If the church were to leverage their social capital, then that teacher wouldn't be in that position and that teacher would feel a lot more support from the community very tangible thing we can do. Uh, we can volunteer to tutor first and second graders who are behind uh, grade level in reading and math because they actually use uh, projections for third and fourth graders who are behind in reading and math scores to know how many prisons they're gonna need to build in the future. Um, so very tangible thing that uh, we can get involved in. Well, yeah. hang on, G say that again. Yeah, so there is a calculation that's made where they look at um, elementary school students really starting in first and second grade, but by the time they get in third and fourth grade, they look at the number of students who are behind reading and math score, uh, levels, a uh, great level in reading and math, and they use those numbers as projections for how many prisons they'll need to build in the future. Because there's a direct correlation between education and incarceration. Um, and there's also a direct uh, linkage between class and incarceration. Whoa. So Brian, Brian Stevenson says this all the time. He says, we have a criminal justice system that works better for you if you're rich and guilty than if you're poor and innocent. He says, wealth, not guilt, is ultimately what shapes um, outcomes in our criminal justice system. And that's not to say that you know people who have committed offenses shouldn't be locked. That's not what... But what it's saying is that the primary predictor of who will spend time behind bars is their wealth and their ability to pay for the highest priced lawyer and to have all of this kind of wraparound support and defense versus people who um, get caught up in the system for economics. A perfect example of getting caught up in the system of economics is cash bail um, and how uh, they did a study and they found out 87% of Americans would not be able to afford bail at the time that it was set. Um, and so we have this uh, system which says that if you don't have $15,000 laying around um, and can afford to bail yourself out, you're gonna be incarcerated before even seeing a judge to see if you're guilty of an offense. Um, and so this has become another major way in which our criminal justice system is becoming so lucrative, where we have uh, right now 75% of people who are in American jails are there not because they've been convicted of a crime, but because they're too poor to afford their bill. So that means we spend $14 billion annually holding people in jail cells who haven't been convicted of a crime. That's $40 million a day. So that's not to say, again, that all of these people are innocent, but it is to say that we live in a nation that say, says that you're innocent until proven guilty. But our criminal justice system is directly defying that right now and has been doing this for a while. And we think it's not a big deal because we think, oh, well, you haven't seen a judge, but you'll see one in one or two days or three days. But that's not always the case. Um, sometimes there have been people who have been locked up before without seeing a judge for 10 years. Um, the quintessential case with this is Khalif Browder, who most people have heard of, but he was a teenager in New York who was coming home from a party, got accused of stealing a book bag. Officers said they were just going to take him down to 
um, the precinct to question him ultimately didn't let him out. And he ended up spending three years behind bars before ever seeing a judge. And because of the physical abuse um, that he received from guards and other people who were incarcerated, he tried to commit suicide six different times while he was incarcerated. And he ended up spending around 180 days in solitary confinement. Um, when he finally got to go before a judge, the judge cleared him of all of his charges, but because of the trauma that he experienced in the midst of his incarceration, within a year of being on the outside, he ended up taking his life. Um, so we, we just have to understand how big uh, this reality is and how problematic it is, um, especially given the rate of error in our system, especially given the racial disparities in our system, uh, the class disparities in our system, and the fact that the vast majority of people who are incarcerated in our nation today are not there for violent offenses. The vast majority of people in our nation, which is surprising the most, especially given the political uh, propaganda fear that both sides champion, um, one side calling people animals, the other side calling people super predators, um, this dehumanizing language that incentivizes us to fear the other and to actually believe that punitiveness is the solution. Um, it really leads to uh, this reality where people are being locked up and the key is being thrown away and most of us have no concern because we're not practicing. Um, and we don't understand how the gospel is consistently summoning us to be a voice of integrity um, that is advocating for a humane system um, and not a system that is rooted in the love of money. Um, you asked me to talk about private prisons earlier. I won't belabor the point. Private prisons are for-profit institutions that exist just to make money. And they're deeply connected to the stock market where private prisons are one of the most bought and sold stock on Wall Street. Uh, we have to understand that people are getting filthy rich off the incarceration of our neighbors, our brothers and sisters. And the two largest private prison corporations in 2017 collectively made over $4 billion in profit. So we just need to understand how this system is connected to the origins of mass incarceration, which was contact leasing, where you saw uh, the least of these being cannon fodder for a broken system that is making some people very rich, but is decimating entire communities. Man, thank you so much for doing this work, for writing this book, for giving this to us, because, you know, I know it, unless people pursue finding out some of these things, they would never know. But from a faith perspective that our formation right now, and it always has been, this isn't new, but yeah. our formation is really contingent on can we, can we see where people are suffering? Can we see where part of that suffering comes from our inability to die to certain things? Yeah. Uh, whether it's the racial perspectives we've been taught as kids, whether it's the economic things that we fear losing. Um, so thank you for being a prophetic voice on this. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you for uh, taking some time to kind of invite your audience into this conversation. And I sent you a link that you can post with this, that um, the United Methodist uh, leadership read the book and they just said that this was such an important conversation that they needed to uh, make it more accessible to more people. So they paid to create a free video-based small group curriculum that's built around the book. And so I hope you link it to um, the podcast to give people access. All you have to do is 
put your email address in and you get access to a video-based curriculum and a written curriculum. And even after that, if you go back, it also gives you app access to a 20-point platform of advocacy and reform, which are high-level um, reform uh, issues that shouldn't be bogged down by partisan politics, but these are common-sense reforms that uh, all people of faith should be able to get, around, get their head around and mobilize behind. I love it. Thanks, man. I'll definitely share that. There is so much to chew on in that conversation. I don't know what challenged you most. I hope something reached out and grabbed a hold of that part of you that believes in injustice, that believes God is at work for all people, that if it's not good news for everybody, it's, it's not good news for anybody. But as we close this, I, I want to ask, what is the thing you feel compelled to do, whether it's to study more deeply into the situations going on in the American prison system or in uh, public schools, for example? Is God prompting your heart to find people who have experienced, work with organizations that are helping people who are coming out of prison or work with uh, younger people who are uh, at risk of finding their way into crime at one point in life? Is God inviting you to something today so that the statistics that we talked about in this podcast would not be true any longer? Dominic Dubois-Gilliard is an author. His book is called Rethinking Incarceration, Advocating for Justice That Restores. He's the Director of Racial Righteousness and Reconciliation for the Love Mercy Do Justice Initiative of the Evangelical Covenant Church. He also serves on the boards of uh, the Christian Community Development Association, CCDA, and also Evangelicals for Justice. You can find more information about him in the show notes. His uh, website's going to be there, as well as a link to his book. Um, If you're listening to this on iTunes, thank you. Uh, Make sure that you subscribe and rate the podcast if you don't mind. Listening on Spotify, great. You're streaming on my website. That is great as well. Uh, My hope and my prayer is that we might live in a world where we are doing justice that restores because... Not because it's just a good idea, but because it is God's design for humanity. So until next time, friends, be well, live wisely, peace. Peace.